Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, where we hope to bring you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson. I'm here once again with my co-host, Carly Harrod. Hi, Carly. Hi, Andy. I can't believe it's March already. Yeah, it does seem the year is getting uh, on already and spring's well on the way now. It is, and this time of the year is brilliant because everything is waking up. And the coast where we are today is teeming with life as our winter visitors are getting ready to leave and our summer visitors are arriving. But we're not going to talk about spring today, are we? No, we're here to talk about the beautiful Solent coast to meet with Shonos, the dog officer for Birdo Air Solent. Hi Shona. Hi Andy. We did pick a lovely day today, didn't we, in the rain? It's just on the verge of rain. It's not too bad at the moment. It's quite grey, but it is quite beautiful on the, on the Hamble here, aren't we? That is correct. Lovely place to see some of our wintering birds. So I mentioned Birdaware Solent. What actually does Birdaware Solent do? So we are a mitigation partnership and we are looking to protect and raise awareness about wintering birds who come to visit the Solent coast in the winter. So mitigation, that's where uh, there's a huge amount of development going on on the south coast at the moment, isn't there? And it's trying to reduce the impact. So um, it means that where you might be impacting some of the birds' habitat on the coast, you do things to try and reduce that impact, um, protect the birds and things like that, isn't it? Yeah, so we look at a lot of recreational disturbance. So that could be different user groups like water sports enthusiasts, um, dog walkers, obviously that's my area of expertise. and we're basically just looking at trying to raise awareness and help people enjoy the coast but while also leaving the birds time to feed which obviously you know is a really important thing for them over the winter they're trying to stock up Um, so every little bit of feeding time is really important for them because it's going to help them on their migration back up north so clearly i mean if i've moved down here or i live here in hampshire anybody but if i've just moved down here and i want to walk on the coast i want to work on the beaches and in the fields and things like that so This is where the conflict can arise, isn't it? Yeah. So, like I say, we want to welcome people to the coast and we want to help them um, behave in a way that means that everyone's sharing the shores responsibly. So, obviously, we all want to get out. We want to enjoy nature. We want to enjoy seeing the birds. I know you're a keen bird watcher as well. So, we want to be enjoying that. And I'm a dog dog owner myself, um, so I love walking my dog. And... It's just about finding that balance and making sure that how you're walking isn't impact negatively impacting those species. Yeah, it's because it's not about trying to exclude various sectors of people because, you know, you hear some people saying, oh, dog walkers shouldn't be on nature reserves. And uh, I mean, clearly there are some issues where people don't necessarily control the dogs in the right way or, um, or, they, or even just people walking on the beach. You see them walking straight through bird flocks, even without dogs. You know, so it's not like the enemies of things is it it's trying to get everybody the right attitude and yeah exactly i think every user group can have a few people who don't pay attention and don't listen to signs or um you know are otherwise doing things that aren't great but the majority of people are definitely trying to do the right thing and i think that's where a big part of our work is raising awareness like i say um because it's something that until i came into this job i wasn't even particularly aware of and i've studied conservation and i never really thought about you know my dog's just off running around in the woods i never thought about oh that actually might be disturbing some of the wildlife and we all get used to you know oh my dog's chasing some birds it looks like they're having fun you know isn't that natural when actually that can have a bit of a negative impact at certain times of the year because essentially dogs are genetically and physically wolves, aren't they? Um, 
So yeah, that's definitely where they came from. Mm. Um, so a lot of dogs have a very strong prey drive, absolutely. Um, and they have, some of them, been bred to help us hunt. So chasing birds is quite natural for a lot of them. Um, obviously, nowadays we give them their food, so it's not an actual biological imperative, but it's a hard time to tell that sometimes to them. So that's why we have to be the responsible ones in that partnership. Yes, and also for the wildlife, they, they, just, they don't know it's a dog on a lead or if it's a well-behaved dog or you know, a badly behaved dog. Um, so I'm saying actually it's not about well-behaved and badly behaved dogs, it's, it's the dog ownership maybe, it's the, it's the control measure, isn't it? So yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily badly behaved owners, it's more lack of awareness for most people. Like I say, most people are genuinely trying to do the right thing. Um, and even myself, there'll be days where I am just trying to get on, get on with my walk, I've got things to do, I've got things on my mind and I might not be paying as much attention as I should be. Um, and it's just trying to always just build in those like healthy, responsible behaviours, checking in with your dog, making sure that if the sign's out, you should have your dog on the lead and things like that. And just taking those little steps to make sure that every time you're out on your walk, you're not causing too much disturbance. And a lot of these birds come from these areas in Siberia and the Arctic where um, there's um, actual wolves and things like Arctic foxes which prey on them. So when, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a little tiny dog, you know, that could look like an Arctic fox to a goose or a or one of the waders that come from these areas, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, our birds are definitely predisposed to see that as a threat and as a predator. Um, and even if we think we're just walking a little way away and we're just minding our own business, um, if we get too close, yes, those birds might fly up as a, as a protective mechanism, absolutely. So, um, I say we're on the Hamble here, and this is part of the special protection area uh, for wintering birds and summering birds as well there's some birds which breed here which like terns and gulls which are important in terms of this area um, but um, some of these birds it's the wintering birds which are really important for um, for this area there's there's three special protection areas SPAs we call them um, so there's the Southampton Water to Solent SPA there's yeah. the Langston Harbour SPA and the Chichester Harbour SPA They've all got various interesting things, but one of the common things is like the Brent geese. There's about 10,000 Brent geese in this area, isn't there, over the winter? Yeah, absolutely. And these are the dark-bellied Brent geese, and they fly up, back up. They'll soon be leaving. Some of them might have well gone by now, and they'll be moving up through the Baltic up to northern Russia. Uh, it's about three, three and a half thousand mile journey. So this feeding time is very important for them to have the energy to fly that far and also have the energy levels and the condition, body condition that um, allows them to breed successfully, isn't it? That's absolutely it. Um, it feels like they've only just arrived actually and now they're already on their way back off. But yeah, so that feeding time is really, really important and it can mean the difference between survival for them. So with um, disturbance of birds, is there anything to look out for um, in terms of how you see the birds reacting. I mean, clearly flying away is a reaction. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> and a little bit further on than we'd really like to get. So what we ask people is just to look out for the birds, um, to give them space, and if you see them start to move away from you or show any sort of signs of distress, that could be, like I say, flying away is probably the most extreme one, but just, um, you know, watching you, if they stop feeding and they're looking at you, or if, like I say, you know, starting to move down the beach potentially, um, that's when we really see they might be aware and that's when we would want to move further away from them and give them a bit more space. And there are some places, I mean like South Sea Common, where birds interact with people quite a lot and the, it's not like in saying keep 100 yards away, 
Because some of those yeah. birds you can get a lot closer to. Absolutely. Because they're a bit more used to people. They know they're probably not going to get chased that much because the local community maybe doesn't do that quite so often. Um, but um, the same species, you know, you might get a lot closer to those ones, but the same species somewhere with a bit more remote and less people on it, they're less used to people. So there's, it's not like a hard and fast rule, keep 50 metres away, is it? Yeah, that's absolutely, and that's part of the difficulty is that we can't give people that one rule that's going to solve all of disturbance. But yes, we want people to keep their eye out and if they do notice the birds becoming upset, then moving away. Because it's actually high tide here, so we can't see, because you know this is a tidal bit of the river, up towards the top of the tidal bit of the river. So this is where the tide's in, in the Solent, and it backs the water up, up the river. So there's not a lot of mud exposed from feeding on, is there? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned tides, because that's one thing that, um, as dog walkers, we quite often walk right along the edge of the tide. And as you say, that might mean that the mudflats are exposed or other really important feeding grounds for the birds. Um, so we do ask people to generally stay a little bit further up the beach. And then if you want your dog to swim, find one specific point where you can see there's no birds because the birds will follow the tide line up as it's a really good important point for them to be feeding on. And one of the things, I mean, because we're talking about feeding, but um, quite a lot of the waders, let's say with the brink geese sometimes, because sometimes they, there's a grassy field I can see over there and they might go into there to feed and feed on, they'll still be feeding on the grass. Um, but a lot of the birds, well, they have to feed on the stuff that's in the mud. They can't do it now. So they end up roosting, don't they, on some of these points we can see here. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I mean, this is the perfect spot for it. Um, if we can describe it, we've got a little narrow channel and then just on the other side, Andy's absolutely right that you might find some birds roosting on there. Um, and a dog will get across that in a few seconds. So another case where we want you to keep your dog a little bit closer, a little bit under control and make sure that you have a really good recall so that if they are swimming out over there, which could actually be dangerous for them potentially, you don't know what currents might under be underneath there, um, making sure that they're not getting to a point where you can't reasonably get them away and out of, safe, out of danger. Because I've just looked across the river, I mean, even just as a bird watcher, you know, because I mean, as I say, it's not all about dogs and people dog walking, you know, it is everybody needs to take responsibility. Absolutely. And it might look attractive for me to have a walk over that bit. Um, but I too would disturb the birds as well, wouldn't I? Yeah, and that's exactly it. Um, dog walkers aren't our only um, source of disturbance. Um, we also have issues with every user group. Um, there's always going to be a few people who just get a little bit too close and just want to you know see the birds a little bit too closely um so absolutely we're not going to fo we're not focusing completely on dog walkers that just happens to be my area of expertise because i could see across the river over there i mean i know you haven't got binoculars on but <laughs> <laughs> i've seen there's a few widgeon which is a type of duck and teal yeah. another little tall tiny duck and there's a couple of waders on that far shore because that's more private there's no public access at all on that side and it's notable there's you know, with all the public access, is quite a heavily used bit of that handle. And there's a lot of paths through here. And I can't see anything on this side because they're all sheltering over there. But then you get the problem because actually what I, I used to do a bit of kayaking. Okay. I say used to, you know, I've got a bit stiff these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, they, the water users need to take responsibility as well, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of our rangers is working with water sports users quite a bit at the moment um, and trying to come up with some code of conduct that's just helping, again, helping them to know where to be careful, where to leave the birds alone, um, whilst also enjoying the enjoying a very fun sport. I also quite like kayaking, so I know how fun it can be. Um, but obviously, we wouldn't want to be disturbing the birds while we're doing it. 
and this is it it could be very easy if i was if we were kayaking on this bit to just think oh, i'll stop over on that bank it's nice and quiet over there i'll stop and have a picnic over there but you'd be disturbing all the birds on these critical high tide roosts we call them aren't they yeah exactly that's it um and obviously if you're in danger you want to get out but it's people who think they can just go stop and have a little bit of a picnic have a little break enjoy the river and actually they're disturbing a really important roost like you say and actually in the summer as well it's, it's as important because you know some of these offshore islands and these little bars and shingle bars in some of these rivers and on these coastal areas you could have things like terns and gulls breeding yeah and there's some very rare terns in in um, hampshire um, which breed on these areas which would normally be totally left alone but if you've got a little boat or a it's very tempting to start off weaving through the little creeks, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a turn raft might look like quite a nice little spot for, you know, <laughs> getting close up close to the birds. But absolutely, we want to leave them to breed in peace. So we've got a paddleboarder out there. So this is one of the people who, you know, you have the thick, looks like a surfboard, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But they're standing up on it, which always seems a bit precarious, but, you know, really quite stable, long paddle, paddling along. And it's not about, again, because we really want people to get out and engage with the countryside, enjoy it, because there's so many health and well-being benefits, you know, to mental health and well-being, as well as the clearly he's getting a lot of exercise out there, you know. But you don't want to discourage people doing it, but it's just understanding the impact you're having on there. I mean, they're probably out there partly enjoying the natural environment and actually wanting to see the birds, you know. So it's not like uh, we're saying no, we don't want any of this up this part of the river. It's more about how they act here, isn't it? That's exactly it. And that's why one of our taglines is share our shores. Mm. Um, and it really is about welcoming everyone down here and making sure that when people are down here, they're just doing the right thing and we're not disturbing too many. So we're on, I say, it's quite a big area you cover. It's all the way from Hearst Castle and the Needles in the west, yep. right through to Chester Harbour on the other side of the Solent and actually you've got staff on the Isle of Wight as well haven't you? Yes we do actually we have um, one of our full-time rangers and a seasonal ranger at the moment who's out there. Mm. So it's a very big area so you got any tips of where people might want to go and um, you know to enjoy this lovely countryside? So yeah um, when it comes to where to walk uh, I would be telling dog owners to try and get a little bit of variety so making sure that you're getting if you are going down to the coast you're also getting a little bit of time off the coast as well so places like the country parks are really good because you've usually got some fields or some woods that you can go and explore which is really good for your dog's enrichment and when you are walking on the beach um, it's always best to stay further up away from the tide line um, and of course pay attention to any on-site signage because it might tell you where there are paths that you should stick to or where there are special protected areas like you've mentioned before. And actually that gets a bit more important in the summer actually because um you know, we're standing on a quite a gravelly bit here. I mean, I don't think it's an area where this might happen, but this is quite the sort of place where some of the wading birds will breed. Yeah. You know, so things like oyster catcher and ring plovers. Um, and they're all declining birds, a lot of these ones. Um, and in the summer, they don't build a proper nest. They make a little scrape at most and then put their eggs straight on the gravel. And they're highly, highly camouflaged. Unless you really knew what, you, even if you know what you're looking for, they can be difficult to find. So you get people doing the surveys of trying to survey these birds, and it's difficult for them to find them. So you wandering along, you know, you wouldn't even know there's a nest you might be treading on. Um, but quite often with those areas, there's quite often little signs up to try and keep you off certain shingle spits, or even areas, even places like Haining Island, really heavily used areas of some of the shingle down there. Um, but I think last year with some of the, there's a little local wardening system. 
where they just inform people that there's birds breeding in an area and you know if you go round this bit so pay attention to what people are saying and please try and comply with them I think's the message isn't it yeah that's exactly it and like you say the first time I went out with a ranger and she was trying to show me a sandling uh, roost yeah it took me ages to spot them and I was knew exactly what I was looking for so yeah you're right um, we might look at a beach and think, oh, it's completely empty, the signs are talking rubbish, but actually they're giving us a good clue as to what might be out there just out of our sight. And that's the thing, because these birds aren't trying to be seen, generally. I mean, clearly you've got some really vocal, obvious birds like uh, oyster catchers, bright red beak, bright red legs, black and white, really noisy, and they'll shout at you, you get anywhere close. Um, but there's some of the birds, like sandlings, they're grey in, in the winter, they look like lumps of pebble and things like that. We get dunlins, which are brown, and they are trying to avoid being eaten by things like peregrine falcons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that camouflage that's really meant to be helping them, in some cases, like what we're talking about here, is actually doing them a little bit of a disservice because we don't notice them and might step right over them. So, I mean, with dog ownership, it's not always about you must have your dog on a lead at all time, is it? No, exactly. We would just say make sure you always have a lead on you. Um, and so that way, and make sure you have a really good recall. Mm. And if you're not 100% on your recall, and you might be somewhere that could be a little bit dangerous, say near a busy road or somewhere where there might be riptides in the, if you're on the coast, um, make sure that you have got your dog on close to you, under close control, and on lead if necessary. Um, because obviously we wouldn't want them to get into a situation that was dangerous for them. So when we talk about recall, it's recalling, being able to get your dog to come back to you. It's not, you know, I can't remember anything these days. It's not that sort of recall, is it? <laughs> no, exactly. So recall is our trainery word for making sure that your dog can come back to you. Um, and it's something that can be really hard to train. And I completely understand my dog still isn't always perfect on his recall. We still have to practice it now and then. Um, and basically you're trying to be more interesting and better than whatever your dog's doing. So it can be really tricky. Um, so making sure that you've trained that well, making sure that you're um, nice and exciting for your dog to come back to. So if your recall isn't perfect and you're trying to get them back in an emergency situation, I always say one of my top tips is to be really exciting, run in the other direction or get down on the ground and rummage around like you just found something really interesting. So I mean, clearly, particularly maybe for new dog owners, because it's increasing, isn't it? People are getting dogs who have maybe not got the experience or limited experience in dog ownership. But I mean, is there any help in learning how to do all this sort of training? Yeah, so we have some really great resources on the BirdAware website. Um, at the moment, we've got some on recall and loose lead walking to make sure that when you do have to have your dog on the lead. So they have a nice little step-by-step -step guide um, that can help you if you haven't managed to get to your training classes yet. Um, and we do always recommend that you do do puppy classes or you reach out to a behaviourist or a trainer if you are needing a bit of help. Um, but these are a great sort of interim or if you've done it a few years ago and you just need to brush off a little bit on those skills and make sure your recall's as, as good as it could be. Um, we're going to be putting out some, tra some training videos soon as well. So that'll be a bit more of a um, visual how-to as well. So really, if you've got a well-behaved dog, it's more, it is about you both together enjoying things a lot more isn't it yeah exactly um that's a really important part of your dog's day um and engaging with us is really important for their mental well-being so we think of a walk as just being for physical well-being but that mental well-being and 
that enjoyment of engaging with us is really important for them and it'll even help with other aspects of your life so it can help with your training mm. it can help with your bonding um, and that mental stimulation is actually really really tiring for them so you might find that they'll be more tired after a good mentally stimulating walk than just a physical one because our relationship dog goes back further than people think i mean it's always difficult to tell dooms between because they are so genetically similar um, of telling if you look back in the fossil evidence or if you know looking at archaeology and you look at early people um, then if there's a, a dog skull there or something you can't really tell the difference between early domesticated dogs and wolves um, but they think that relationship goes back 30 40,000 years it wasn't necessarily you know um, people think of domestication where you oh well you, you take a wolf pup and you raise it but they don't think it's as simple as that. They think that the grey wolves in places like Siberia started working with people because, you know, they both had benefits from hunting animals. You know, so that relationship goes back 30, 40,000 years and it's a relationship between the two of us, between dogs and us as well as us and dogs. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very controversial and very debated topic. Um, and there's been thousands of theories and we still don't, as you say, we still don't know exactly when it happened. Um, but that relationship has definitely been well worked in for a long time. And that idea of us having a wolf in our living room is actually a little bit outdated now um, because they've spent so much time with us and we've had such a you know, heavy hand in their breeding and how they've, um, what they've been doing with us that they've actually sort of fully evolved away from, that, from the wolf now. Um, and they behave very differently um, when you put them into similar scenarios. So while they could technically still interbreed, they are um, very much their own animal now and they will react very differently in um, certain circumstances. So is there any top tips for walking on the coast? So yeah, one of my favourites is when we did a blog about fairly recently and that's all about engagement. And we've discussed a little bit about how important it is for you to be interacting with your dog. Um, and that could be as simple as just checking in with each other every now and then, so making sure that your dog's paying attention to you and you can give them a little food reward or you can just talk to them a little bit. Um, but there are other ways that you can do that. You can play games. Um, and a lot of people will think of a game with a dog just being like throwing a ball. And while that can be really good, my own dog might my own dog absolutely loves his tennis ball. Um, that repetitive movement and that repetitive behaviour can be um, less stimulating than other options. So we could play the find it game. So we scatter some treats or we hide some treats or one of their favourite toys for them to find and then we get them to search it. So they're practising some of those natural behaviours. Um, or you could just find little bits and things that are interesting for them to sniff and give them a real time to explore that on their own terms rather than just, you know, getting on with our walk we tend to just march around and giving them time to explore on their own terms is really really good for them uh, that could also just take the form of some training so if we're doing training in a sort of fun positive way with treats or toys as rewards um, and you're keeping it to like nice little short sessions um, that can actually be really fun for dogs and really fun for us as well and again we're coming back to that idea of bonding and engaging on our walks which is really good for both of us what about dangers is there any particular dangers to look out for on the coast so as we've mentioned before, it's all about looking out for on-site signage, which could warn you of so path erosion, um, maybe the mudflats are a bit dangerous, or currents, which we wouldn't necessarily notice from the path, um, but could be really dangerous for our dogs. Because there was a recent story in the news I saw about the, uh, there was a dog that got lost in an area of uh, Langston Harbour, I think, and it was eventually spotted, and it was on really quite dangerous mudflats. Yeah, so, um, and they actually, um, 
they used a, a drone, didn't they? And trailed a sausage underneath the drone to try and... And they eventually got it to a safer place, didn't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, one of our rangers was actually there watching some of that unfold. Um, so, again, really good important point about having your recall and making sure that your dog doesn't get lost. Um, and yeah, that could have been really dangerous and luckily it all ended really nicely. So you talked a little bit about the videos and some of the resources that are available. I mean, where would people find those? So yeah, you can find that on our website and so just search for BirdAware Solent. Well, thanks, Shona. I've really enjoyed coming out today and you get some great, great information there. That's great. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm always happy to come and talk about dogs with anybody. Now, you're not a dog owner, Andy, are you? But you are a bird watcher. And we had some great top tips from Shona about dogs. Do you have a top tip for bird watching at the coast? Yes, I do. I'd like to, clearly, it's a lovely place to come and there's loads of things to see. I do a little bit of photography, but some people t really go for photography with massive long lenses and things like that. But even as a, a bird watcher and a photographer, you need, I mean, we call it field craft quite often. Mm -hmm. is, um, don't, is similar messages, don't approach them too close. There's always, I'd like to get a little better view. Maybe if I go around the corner a bit, I'll get a better view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can still put birds up and disturb them, you know. And if you're into birds, really, that's absolutely the last thing you want to do. Yeah. So quite often the field craft is more about letting the birds come to you. I mean, mm -hmm. clearly, you know, if the tide's rising, I wouldn't want to be standing on that point because that's exactly where they'd want to roost. Yeah. But I can get a great view from here. Um, and you get some places where the birds become what we call habituated. Mm -hmm. So they're used to people being around. And they know they don't get interacted much. And there's places like, um, think about some of our sites, Leap Country Park and Titchfield Haven. Yeah. Where the birds are so used to people, you know, things like turnstones are pretty much running around under your feet. They are, yeah. But there still not, shouldn't be the temptation to think, well, they're, they're all right, I can get closer. Mm -hmm. But trust the birds and watch to see for those signs of disturbance. Yeah. So they suddenly stop feeding or... They're all up looking around, looking at you. Well, that's the sign thinking, is that person a threat? Mm -hmm. So look out for those signs and back off a little bit, really. Yeah. Now, quite often when we're at the coast, we see another one of my favourite animals, and that is a seal. And there's quite a population of seals in the Solent. Yeah, there's actually two species. One's a lot scarcer than others. Um, I mean, they're not common as such, although one is called the common, the common seal. seal yeah. <laughs> or harbour seal is another name yeah. for it. Um, but you also get a much bigger grey seal mm -hmm. as well. But um, I've only seen grey seal a couple of times. I've seen common seal quite a few times, actually. So did you know that March the 22nd is International Seal Day? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't either. But so I'm going to give you a fun fact about seals. I know we've been talking about dogs and birds today, but I'm going to give you a fun seal fact today. Are you ready? Yep. So on deep dives that can last up to 30 minutes, seals can drop their heart rate to as low as three to four beats per minute. It's absolutely amazing what these things can do, isn't it? It is, isn't it? And that's because they want to slow their body systems down so they're not using the oxygen so they can stay down further. And do you know how big seals get, Andy? Well, as I say, I was all about the grey seal. Mm -hmm. um, so. I used to have a kayak and I remember as a sea kayak, so it was a, quite a long one, about probably about eight foot, maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And certainly a big grey seal can be that size. 
Yeah, so the seals we see are around two metres in length. Yeah. They won't get much bigger than that. But the southern elephant seal gets up to 3,200 kilograms in weight. That's a fair old lump of seal, isn't it? That's a big lump of seal. I definitely would give that one a great deal of space. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But they're not round here. I mean, clearly, I mean, I'm hoping to go down to New Zealand and see Manise at some point. And I'd hope to see them down there at some point. You know, they're southern oceans. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're, you know, if you're talking about unusual things, it didn't come this far, but it's certainly in, in Wales and into Cornwall and the Isles of City, they had a walrus last we year, did, didn't they? We did, yes. I'd like to see a walrus. Yeah, Wally so, it was, was the, yeah. Wally the walrus. Wally the walrus, what a name. So if you do see seals, you can record your sightings on the Solent Marine Mammal site, which is a really good way to... Um, keep track of how many seals we have in the Solent. Yeah, and quite often the things to look out for, because the common seal has got like a dog-like face, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it, some people think, oh, it's a dog, but no, it's not. Um, yeah, quite often they'll get quite close in. Actually, they can sometimes, if you've got a dog on the shore, they'll have a look, you know, you can pop up and they can see them watching. Yeah. They go, what's that? Mm-hmm. Um, I say the grey seal of any seal in one place, but that's got generally much bigger but it's got what you might think is a more roman nose a bigger nose mm-hmm. that's a bit you know it can be difficult to point out but probably just the record of a seal is yeah. still valuable isn't it yeah definitely so i hope you've all enjoyed this episode of looking after nature we'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode you can let us know by checking out our social media pages and we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on itunes as this helps other people find us For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time.